Parse was a back-end-as-a-service company that started in 2011 with the initial focus of making the cloud easier to use for mobile developers. Parse had several novel engineering challenges. In 2011, it was not easy to build on top of AWS, nor was it easy to build within the young mobile ecosystem. Charity Majors was an early engineer at Parse, and she stayed with the company through its acquisition by Facebook. Charity joins the show to discuss her experience at Parse and her reflections on being part of Facebook after the acquisition. Parse was shut down in 2017, which was a disappointing outcome for Charity, who really loved the service. Charity currently works as the CTO of Honeycomb. In a previous episode, Charity gave some background on her career in software, as well as her perspective on modern problems in observability and DevOps. In this episode, Charity tells the story of joining Parse, working through novel engineering problems, and feeling, after being acquired by Facebook, that she was not a great cultural fit at the company. This is a useful conversation for anyone who is interested in engineering culture, company philosophy, and the realities of acquisitions, which can be both painful and profitable for the acquired employees. I hope you enjoy the episode. Charity Majors, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you about Parse and Facebook and Honeycomb as well. But I was looking at your background, and you worked at Linden Lab for five yes, years. Yes, I did. Uh, yeah. So this was starting back in 2004. For those who don't know, Linden Lab makes Second Life, which is a popular online world game. It's kind of virtual reality before virtual reality. Yeah. Tell me about the software architecture of Second Life. Oh, boy. It was distributed systems before distributed systems were cool. Like, so many of the things that we did, like database sharding before sharding was a thing. We we also, like, had to invent our own, like, <laughs> our own sort of version of Chef or Puppet or whatever. We literally arsynced the entire operating system over every night for thousands of servers. Seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> like, the tools just did not exist at the time. It was such a great place to work, though. That was, like, college for me. I was too young to know any better. And we were growing really fast. This was before Facebook too. So it was kind of like, it was a great wild west. Like everybody knew that something was going to be huge. And for a while there, it looked like it might be Second Life. Fun fact, Second Life Linden Lab is actually still around, still very profitable. They make like $100 million a year. It's like the greatest failure of Silicon Valley. (laughs) What's hard about scaling a virtual world? What was hard then was that it was like we were you know, on a desert island, we had to build our own forks and spoons out of, you know, things that didn't exist. Like right now, there are so many components, you kind of have your pick of them. It's like, well, I want this library, I want this automation framework, I want, you know, this stuff. Back then, we were really pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Beyond that, what's hard about scaling a virtual world is the users. <laughs> the fact that everybody's so emotionally connected to, you know, and they make up these conspiracy theories about how the Lindens are trying to manipulate, you know, for their personal gain or because they have this, you know, very conspiratorial worldview. People care, they get invested, and you hate to break their hearts. You joined in 2004, and that was before the cloud became popular. And a lot of your writing and your speaking in a modern sense is 
is about modern operations with the cloud. How was operations different in the pre-cloud days? Yeah, how was it different? God, I remember driving to the colo to flip the switch in the MySQL primary so many times. Like, virtual hands didn't exist, let alone there being an API where you could SSH in and just, you know, destroy it and bring up a new one. Those are the bad old days. I don't really like to think about that. I swore an oath five, six, seven years ago that I was never going to their COA facility again. As far as I'm concerned, hardware does not exist. <laughs> That's the level of abstraction that I'm willing to work at nowadays. It's better. <laughs> you worked at several other companies between Linden Lab and eventually joining Parse in 2012. So we'll skip over some of your career, although I'm sure there's plenty of interesting stuff in there. Tell me how you found out about Parse. It's so funny. I basically have two types of jobs in my past. There's the ones that I've been for a year and a day because I felt, you know, that sense of obligation to stick it out long enough. And there's the ones where I have fallen in love, right, with the company, with the mission. And it's so funny. As an infrastructure person, I fed myself this lie for years that I didn't care about the product, that I was just an infra-nerd, that I just, you know, didn't care what was going on up above me. You know, I toiled down in the salt mines of, you know, servers and racks and databases. And that was a dirty lie. <laughs> I have always cared about the mission. I think that all of us do, you know. There's so, something so wonderful about seeing people use what you make and seeing people get excited and seeing people build their own things on top of it. I mean, the thing that I love about it, being an infrastructure is that you're a force amplifier, right? You're building the infrastructure for everyone else to do their creative stuff on. I guess that's the conclusion that I, I came to after being at a couple of places where I genuinely didn't care about the mission, right? So what brought me to Parse was, funnily enough, a recruiter. <laughs> Only time in my life that this has ever worked on me, a recruiter just happened to cold email me while I was sitting there just like not engaged in my work at all. And I realized that I missed it. Like I was living the dream, some of my thought, my friends thought, because I was working an hour or two a day and getting great reviews. Everybody thought I was amazing. And I was bored out of my skull. I needed something interesting and challenging and hard. This recruiter from Parse happened to email me and I was like, huh, platforms. I think I like platforms. And I responded. I was their first infrastructure hire, actually. It was pre-beta. It was just like five, six, seven software engineers in a tiny little office. And that's kind of the niche that I've enjoyed in my career, is being that first or very early hire who comes in when a bunch of software engineers have a crazy idea that they think might just be a real thing, and then I help them grow up. Tell me about the product of Parse at the time you joined and how that product was implemented. Yeah. At the time I joined, it was just a, a few mobile APIs on top of MongoDB. I got to become a MongoDB expert real fast. MongoDB at the time was a very immature product. It had a single global lock per replica set, which for a multi-tenant system was interesting, interesting to run. But over time, it, it grew up into being a very robust ecosystem of basically the best way to build mobile apps. I long live Parse. I will never forgive Facebook for killing Parse, man. But it was, it, you could... We'll get there. As, it, <laughs> as an app developer, you could just, you know, with a, with a single pasted line, you could create an app and just start focusing on what made your app different and cool and fun without having to do all of the boilerplate, the, the stuff on the back end that was just the same for app after app after app. We just took care of it. Push notifications, just a simple API. Storage, just a simple API. 
login, just a simple API. Uh, it was kind of groundbreaking in that way. Parse is a backend as a service, a mobile backend as a service, or is or was slash both. There were several different storage systems eventually. So it started off with, as you said, Mongo, but over time it had Mongo, it had Cassandra, it had Redis, it had MySQL. Why were there so many different database types? How did the data model advance? Yeah, so there's two different things to distinguish here. There's the databases that we needed on the back end to make the platform work, which is MySQL was always our source of truth for customer data, like passwords, you know, login stuff. Like we knew better than to trust that to Mongo. <laughs> it was a relational database. It was boring. It was safe, right? So that's where all of our, you know, the parse data went. User data went to Mongo, which was honestly, I, I don't think parse could have been built without MongoDB because it was so flexible. Like we, we had write heavy apps. We had read heavy apps. We had you know, apps that are doing 3D modeling, and all of these things were possible in MongoDB and didn't require you to define a schema up front. The schema changes alone would have made um, it almost impossible to build Parse on MySQL or Postgres. Postgres later added you know, JSON support, but at the time, it was really MongoDB or nothing. Cassandra was the backing store for our analytics product, so that you could get your mobile analytics. It was kind of like integrating TapJoy with, you know, everything else. And Redis was, you know, Redis is not a database. Redis is a cache, right? But it was the cache that backed our entire, like, we ran push notifications millions a day off of a single core on Redis. So it was incredibly fast and efficient at that. Never put any data that you actually care about into Redis, so just don't do that. So we needed all of those in the back end to make, to make parse work. Now, later on, we actually implemented an open parse type strategy where you could hook up other databases to using your app by, for your app data too, so that you could be backed by Heroku, be backed by Postgres, be backed by anything. Because here's the thing about data: when you're getting started, when it, when it's small, it's easy. Everything's easy. If you're lucky and you're getting traction, you cross a an event horizon beyond which that is not true, and you will have to know your data. <laughs> You'll have to know your data model. You have to know things about the query planner. You have to know things about how the data store underneath it works. And there's just no way around that. And this is something that we and our customers ran into like a brick wall around two years after I joined because we suddenly had all these big customers who had gotten started really easily. And now they got big enough that they needed to understand things about their data model that we didn't surface. And so we were like on the phone with them explaining to them what made for an efficient query and how that translated into our SDKs, which is not the situation you want to be in <laughs> ever. Parse grew very quickly, and being at a startup like Parse sounds both nerve-wracking and exhilarating. It's the kind of thing, you know, you catch lightning in a bottle only so many times in a career, if ever. Do you have any particular memories of the adrenaline during that period of time that, that, you know, particular memories of outages or difficult problems or milestones, things that got your adrenaline going? Oh, so many. Back then, I was on call for about five years straight, four years straight. I had hired a couple people. At the time, we were not making software engineers be on call for reasons that are no longer true. So it was it was just us and ops, right? And an ops was such a key pillar of Parse. Like we were outsourced ops for, you know, a million mobile apps. I have so many memories of, you know, getting woken up, tending, you know, overnight rebuilds, index builds, you know, 
I love firefighting. Like that's, <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit it. I, I have always gotten a serious high off that shit and it was really fun. However, it did start to wear on one. And there came a point when I, I was realizing that, so, so Parse was built in Ruby, right? So we had a pool of Ruby apps all talking to MongoDB backends. And the number of MongoDB da- databases started to balloon. So now you had a single pool of Ruby apps all talking to, say, 20 databases. Now, the Ruby Rails model is such that if, if a thread is being held open to a backend that is not responding, it just hangs, and there's no real way to interrupt it without doing some seriously hacky garbage, which all of which we did. But the TLDR is that when any one of these data storage sources got slow, the entire unicorn pool would fill up within seconds before anyone could react, and all of parts would go down for everyone on all of the shards. This was exciting and fun the first couple times it happened. <laughs> But when it got to a point that it was happening a few times a day and there was nothing, we couldn't react fast enough, we couldn't catch it fast enough, we couldn't kill those fuckers, <laughs> we couldn't like, you know, so we'd have to go and manually like blacklist a replica set or figure out which app it was and blacklist that, you know, and rinse and repeat like hour after hour, day after day. That got old real fast. And that's when we started to grapple with the fact that this was a, one of those rare cases where a real actual rewrite was called for because... You know, we either had, we could have rewritten in JRuby, which would have meant rewriting all of the gems, none of them were thread saves. We ended up rewriting it in Go. And this was the right solution. It took, as you can predict, longer than we thought it would and was harder than we thought it would be. But it ultimately yielded a, an app tier that was written in a, in a language with threads. <laughs> so the threads could just time out and we could bring up as many backends as we needed, etc. Ugh, I don't know if you want to get into that whole saga, but yes. Adrenaline, absolutely. And it is it is a magical time to be in a startup. I will point out that it was rocket ship growth for free apps. And this is a lesson that Christine and I, my co-founder, took to heart. And we have never... We took three years to introduce a, a free tier to Honeycomb because we saw how much blood, sweat, and toil went into apps that were effectively disposable and nobody was... Free users are the worst users. <laughs> They are so demanding, and they do not give a and they're giving you nothing. This is actually something I heard Ilya discuss on another podcast where he was talking about some of the lessons from Parse, and I think one of them was that, well, if you are one of these systems with a free tier, the way that your business model works is often you have like a very small percentage of users, like we're talking, you know, one to 5% maybe who are paying customers. Like you think about Heroku, of course, and most of the people are on hobby dinos. Like they're doing everything they can to keep it free. They're like setting up scripts to, to ping their server just to keep it alive. It's like, they'd rather pay for AWS Lambda than for like paying for it. It makes no sense. People get attached to free and it makes no sense. And they do crazy things. That's actually a really good point because, like, once you start with free, it's like I don't know. There's some kind of loss away. aversion or or <laughs> yeah. something like that. Yeah, people feel entitled to it. Right. Yeah. But anyway, so we can maybe get into like business model lessons or, or something later on. But let's continue down this this storyline. Eventually, Parse was acquired by Facebook, and 
my understanding of of the process is that there were different people who were interested. You know, it, it was a very desirable acquisition. What are your memories of the acquisition process? Did, was that totally shielded from you, or or was it in your purview? Yeah, no, they we did not know anything, and this is a thing that was kind of reflecting on it. Christine and I have chosen very different model of transparency. We had no idea that they were fundraising or that they were, you know, in talks for acquisitions or anything. I was at a conference giving a talk and we got called back for an all hands. We had never had an all hands before. So that was a little weird. So we had this all hands and they announced that we got bought by Facebook and a few people cried. <laughs> the entire oh, room no. was just stunned and shocked. Oh, just no. like, oh, nobody was happy that I can recall. Really? Yeah, no. Maybe one or two people. I don't know. But it, we had just moved into this great office, and we were all so stoked to be working for Parse. We believed in our mission, right? And we hadn't really been prepared for this, and none of us wanted to be commuting down to the South Bay every day, and we were very dubious about you know, what our overlords would do to the product, to the team, you know, all of which was completely warranted and more. But, you know, they gave us our payouts and, you know, most of us decided to stick around for a little while to see how it went. Um, I ended up sticking around for a pretty long time, bought my house, so I can't exactly, you know, complain. It's, it's real first world problems here, but like, no, we were not stoked as a team, <laughs> which is like now, like Christine and I, like, we we are transparent with our team about this because the worst part was the shock that we just had no idea that this might be in the cards. The worst part was just like showing up, oh, all hands cool, you know, not even thinking that. So like we tell our team, you know, when we're considering, we tell our team up to the point where we don't want it to be distracting to people, but we don't want them to feel just like just blown up with like <laughs> shocked. Like it's their, it's their company too, right? They joined a startup because they want to have this experience of ownership, this experience of figuring things out. And, and so we feel that they deserve to be informed of what we're doing because of that experience, I think. Although it's not a democracy though. So no, of do, do course you, not. So, but you just, you're just clear about it. You're like, look, we're, we're going to make it. it. Yeah. And we care about what they think and feel. I mean, we are doing our best to steer it to a good outcome for our people, that matters way more than our own personal outcomes. But it's not a democracy because you can't operate that way. It's a pragmatic way of looking at things. Anyway, so, well, how did your work change after you were acquired? I know I know it did change. Yeah, it changed a lot. Product development screeched to halt for a couple few months as, as everything got <laughs> thrown up in the air and resettled. And I became a manager mostly because I felt that I didn't have the ability to tap into the information that I needed without becoming a manager, which was also a pretty impactful realization for me. I don't feel like anyone should become a manager because they feel like they can't get access to the information that they want or because they feel like they're not in the loop unless they're a manager. Like, that's a terrible reason to become a manager. But it's how I felt there, so I became a manager. And we suddenly had more resources. I got to stop worrying about our AWS bill. That was fun. Started commuting two, three hours a day on a good day down to the South Bay. So I started working a lot less. I mean, it was just a huge culture shock. You know, we're all startup kids. Got to work with some amazing engineers there, who I, I still love and keep in touch with. Wasn't used to having my word questioned so much. Wasn't used to showing up in a room and just being looked up and down and having people go, uh, are you technical? And I'd be like, F you. <laughs> I'm here representing a, a technical product, a technical organization. I'm here, like, just talk to me, like, 
I'm a human, you know? It was, it was a real culture shock, but I'm glad that I've had the experience. I learned a lot, mostly about how bureaucratic organizations run, which is a good set of lessons to have. And when I was coming out of Facebook, VCs were coming to me for the first time in my life. I had a pedigree for the first time ever. I was not a better engineer coming out of Facebook, but for the first time I had the kind of stamp that made people come to me and go, ooh, would you like a couple billion dollars to do something? Which is kind of why I felt like I had a responsibility to the universe to take it. <laughs> I'm never going to have that happen again. So, <laughs> you know, take it and do something. Actually, no, I think you you probably have that ticket for the rest of your life. You know, assuming. Well, maybe. But at the time, that was my thinking. It was like, this is never going to happen again. I should do this now. <laughs> I'm glad you've taken it. But coming back to Facebook and Parse. So in our last episode together, you talked about how there was not direct synergy between Facebook and Parse, at least not in the way that Facebook and Instagram make sense. Like there were some synergies like back in 2013, it was very easy to imagine Facebook becoming some kind of infrastructure platform for identity or something but yeah there were real possibilities for that yeah it was it was just a mismanaged acquisition i mean there are two acquisitions that stand out in my mind as models of good acquisitions right facebook and instagram and salesforce and heroku like i think both of those were done they're very different but they were both done very well. And Salesforce and Heroku, I think, is a it, parse could have been done that way, right? Like Salesforce gave Heroku a long leash, you know, for a couple of years at least. You know, they were out on their own. So like the original crew like got to kind of gracefully transition out. There wasn't this abrupt like, well, now you're shipping down to somewhere else. They had their own culture. They still do, you know, a lot of independence. Facebook and for us, like I learned afterwards some things that like, you know, it was basically Zuck and our, our internal champ. Here's, here's one lesson I learned. Acquisitions need to have a C-level champion. Parse did not. It was like a product manager over on the platform side who championed this, who got reassigned or fired shortly thereafter. Like he and Zuck like cooked this up. And, and when it was announced, like the C-levels and VPs were just as shocked as anyone else. So, so we never really had a sponsor. We bounced around internally a bunch. And real quick, it's worth noting. I think this was what, was what like an eighty-five billion, eighty-five yeah, million dollar acquisition. I know, I know. Yeah, exactly. So we never really had an executive sponsor. We had three different orgs within like, you know, three within like a year and a half. Nobody felt vested in our success, right? And that's probably why we never succeeded. Like Facebook platform had some huge problems that we could definitely have helped with, like. Ways to make developers stop hating you. Well, stop issuing non-breaking changes, right? Basically, we rolled up and, and they were like, how could we make developers stop hating us? And our API developers said that, stop making breaking changes. And they're like, ah, no, well, we can't do that. What else you got? And we were just kind of like, uh, <laughs> you know, like they, they wanted to basically just, we showed up and the team that got us, Platform, who again, didn't really have a vision for us, just kind of wanted to like envelop us or, or like merge us into the Facebook platform without any idea of how that would actually work. I don't know. Like a lot of this, I may be wrong in some of the details because I'm getting this from people after the fact. I was not privy to these things that were happening at the time. This is the story that makes sense to me because it jives with what I experienced, which was just like everybody just kind of like, uh, we don't know where to put you or <laughs> what to do with you. Certainly their platform team did not take any suggestions from us whatsoever. So it was not clear what our utility was to them after a while, which is why they moved us to a different org <laughs> after after a couple of quarters. It was just a clusterfuck. I mean, Facebook clearly did not have any commitment to its own platform. Um, once it became clear that they would have to do things that conflicted in any small way with their own bottom line. You know, there are some days where, like, I wake up, 
maybe I have a little too much coffee. I get a little over caffeinated and like I start a new project. I'm really excited about the project. And then, you know, by the end of the day, I'm like, why did I spend my whole day on on this like yeah. terrible project? Like I went way too- That was too- like Zuck and developers. <laughs> right. Like he's just like eventually like he had eh, a few too many it. espressos. I'll spend yeah. 85 million on parse. Why not? So yeah, it seems like a good exactly. idea. Sink or swim. Have fun, kids. <laughs> so maybe you've already answered it to the extent that you can, but is there something that could have been done differently to make Parse a more successful acquisition? Honestly, Facebook would have to be a different company, I think. Ultimately, there just wasn't alignment, and that became more clear as time went on. I mean, there are a million choices that Facebook could have made differently that would have made it um, a good acquisition, but the company that Facebook is today, Parse is never going to be successful there. What makes me angrier is that I have heard that both AWS and Google wanted to buy it when Facebook was thinking of shutting it down. And Facebook declined. It wasn't worth the paperwork to them. So they just shut it down instead of selling it. If true, that makes me furious. (laughs) Furious. Because it was a very valuable platform. It meant a lot to a lot of people. It helped a lot of people get their businesses up and running fast. It really changed the way we thought about platforms as a service. We had done the work to make it, you know, compatible with open open source, open platforms, all this stuff. And it strikes me as the kind of thing that they would do, honestly. So I mean I thought the shutdown was kind of protracted though. Like didn't didn't it get open it sourced or like it's was, still maintained or something? Six, that's that's the period of time in which, as I understand it, AWS and Google reached out and were like, We'll take it. <laughs> Well, that's super perplexing, though, because, I mean, there was some taking on of technical debt, right? Like, if you were open sourcing it, it is open source at this point, right? It's like open source yeah. and the original hosted it is service. yes and no, but it's not the original code. It's a Node.js. Like, the original code was in Go. It was highly performant. It was multi-tenant. But it was it was so customized to things about our environment. And, and this is just like a single – it's for handling a single app. It's not for, like, handling a million apps. Well, that's bizarre. Yes and no. I can understand why they did it. It's also a little bizarre. <laughs> huh. Okay. Yeah. It's not the original code. No. Weird. Yeah. So you uh, were you gone at that point? Were you gone when yeah, they... Yeah, I left. You left. I, I left. The big thing that I... Open Parse, when it was proposed to us, and in retrospect, I think that this was when the founders... Like, they were not transparent with us about ever anything i think that open parse was when they when they knew this was likely to come open parse was their effort to bring it in for a good landing right so it would live on Um, i remember when kevin was telling us about open parse and i was just like this does not make sense this doesn't make sense like what am i missing this doesn't make sense and it drove me nuts and and he kept telling me you know that i was crazy and no this is making you know, just spinning these fairy tales about how it would make sense. It didn't make sense. And I was so, so, and I finally, like, I'm going to disagree and commit. I'll, I'll execute on this. You know, I'm a good soldier. And I go out and I, I take my team of people, you know, and this is the second time that, like, I've taken them on a mission, you know, and then it's just been, like, rugs been yanked out under my feet. But, like, I was tired at that point. I was just like, you know, I'm going to take this. We're going to finish it because Parse is if I leave. But then... I don't, I'm going to need to go because this is like impacting my health, my sanity. Like this doesn't make sense. It is driving me nuts and I'm drinking too much and I can't sleep, you know. And then they just told me to leave. And I think that he was trying to do it for my sake, but it was the worst thing you could have done because I knew that they were all at that point. Like there was no way that 
like I had all the institutional knowledge of everything. <laughs> and in retrospect, I realized that I was inappropriately propping up morale for the entire engineering org. You know, they believed that I was there, so they believed things would be okay. Like, they trusted me. I shielded them from all these things. And as soon as I left, like, everything did just kind of crumple. and People just, like, evaporated and left. And in reality, I kept them there too long. Those were amazing engineers, great people. They should have been off doing something better with their lives, but because I believed in this company and stayed there too long, everyone else did too. <laughs> Isn't it crazy how cognitive dissonance, when, like, the, a person at the top has cognitive dissonance, but there's, I mean, you were kind of in the top relative to the engineers. Somebody was above you. They may or may not have had they some knew. sort of... They knew. They knew it, or they suspected. Yeah. They knew it they didn't did make sense. They did not tell me. And I wasn't... No, they knew or suspected that the parse was getting shut down. They were in the rooms where, like, they were looking for executive sponsors and all this stuff. They knew. They weren't telling me. I see. So they knew that parse was going to get shut down, and they were kind of selling it to you as if... We're going to do open parse. It's the next phase of the parse life, you know, story. Yes. And I was like, this makes no sense. Ah. <laughs> and I wasn't cynical enough at that point to read be be between the lines. I. That's brutal. Uh, yeah. And what I was going to say is like the cognitive dissonance thing. It's like, you know, it grinds at you. And then, you know, you're experiencing it. And then you're like, it doesn't make sense. But, you know, they're selling me this story, like it kind and, of fits and together. And I them, and like we've been doing this together for so long, and I can make myself believe it if I squint, you know? Right. Yeah. But then there's something in your soul that, like, you know, then it just starts to emerge in, in, in drinking too much and not getting sleep. And, and it probably rubs off on the engineers beneath you, which is what's terrible. Yeah, and so it's like, it wow, does. brutal. It, I, I don't know. Like, the, I think, I do think that some people are better equipped than other people to enjoy the work that's in front of them compartmentalize to not have to understand why you know if, if you're enjoying if it's a great project fun team you know and you're just enjoying your life like not everyone is cursed with the with the need to know why all the time you know and unfortunately i am and so yes i don't know yeah it was brutal it was brutal it took me a long time to recover from that i still don't quite understand so there's somebody above you they're literally saying, so they knew Parse is going to get shut or they down. they suspected. What I think is that they suspected, they're in these rooms, you know, where people are discussing the future of Parse, and they're seeing that there's not a lot of support or reason. And so they're doing their best, right? They're do all doing their best. They're doing their best to, like, try and, you know, split the pie or, like, you know, chart the best possible course for the people and the product and the team. They just don't really believe the transparency is, is the way to do that. Interesting. It's, uh, it's funny because that's the second note on transparency in the conversation. Well, I guess it does kind of make sense. Cause it, so if they're basically in a position where they're like, okay, this thing is going to get shut down. Yeah, probably. Maybe not, right? Maybe there'll be like a Hail Mary. So you don't want to just like tell the team and like, you know, like I can see that from their perspective. It's not the choice I would make, but... I can see it. You see that that makes it kind of how oh, wow. that now you like seeing it from their perspective and and I'm going to do an, an interview with Ilya so so maybe we can shed shed more oh, light boy. on this. <laughs> uh, maybe I shouldn't have told you that. Uh, no, it's fine. But if you think about it from their perspective, okay, this thing is going to get shut down. Uh, we can't tell probably the, we probably <laughs> we can't tell the engineers yeah. it's going to get shut down if maybe there's a vision for making it an open thing and that will make the engineers 
less spiteful when we finally tell them this thing is going to be shut down, but thankfully we've been working on the escape hatch, the open source escape hatch for the last three months. Aren't you relieved that I had you work on that open source escape hatch? Yeah, I don't think that they expected anyone to be pleased. <laughs> I just think that it's like, what are you going to do? You've got a team. You've got to tell them something to do. You don't want to like... I'm sure they feel like if they tell one person it's going to get out and everyone's going to know or something, they kind of saw us all as being, you know, they were very founders versus everyone else. There weren't like, you know, other levels of privileged information. And so like, you know, and until it's a hundred percent for sure, you're always hoping that it's not going to come go that way. You know, maybe you've seen like near misses in the past and you're hoping this will be one too. So, you know, I can totally see it from their perspective and they're good people and they're doing the best for us, you know, and I can't, it was just hard. So we've been doing this series on Facebook engineering. We've told a bunch of stories about how Facebook engineering is different from a lot of other companies. And most of those stories, the engineer who I'm interviewing is a great fit at Facebook, and they're, they're able to do some of their best work. They're really happy with the, with the things that they've done at Facebook. It seems like you were less of a good, like, cultural fit. Like, you, you were not comfortable. You were not totally happy or gratified and i'm sure a lot of that had to do with the commute by the way but yeah uh, um, <laughs> not but, a great start to the day <laughs> not a great start to the day but tell me your memories of the facebook engineering culture and why was it discordant with who you are yeah that's a great question in some ways i think i got off in the wrong foot because i was so pissed about having to be there you know when you choose into something you just have a different attitude than when you get pushed into something for sure so there's that but also like there's a lot of arrogance. I remember one of the first days I was there, I get called into, as the infra tech lead, I get called into like the head of, you know, infra engineering's office. And he's like, it just, I get this feeling like I'm supposed to be super impressed and supposed to be just like wide eyed, like, Ooh, everything's so cool. And I'm just kind of not, and they're kind of pissed about it. But he just likes, he's like, Oh, so when are you going to get off AWS? And I'm like, well, we're, we're not. No, um, no. You know, and, and he's like, well, of course you are. And I'm like, no, we're not. Let me count the ways of why we're not. Like, our data model means that, like, we rely on this elastic storage, like 12 terabytes, et cetera. You don't have the right hardware. It would cost $20 million minimum to, like, run our databases in your infrastructure. And, like, down the lines, like, the biggest reason of all was at the time they had a perfectly flat network. And we're letting developers all over the world just, like, run random third-party untrusted code on our systems and queries on our systems. On Facebook's network, they could just, like, call out to any Facebook node and gather data. Like, there were so many reasons why we're not moving off of AWS and onto Facebook's network. And he just, like, he literally rolls his eyes and shrugs me. He's like, ugh, those are just details. Like, we'll solve it. Like, we're Facebook. You know, literally said, we're Facebook. Like, we'll fix it. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure you won't. I'm pretty sure you won't, and you shouldn't. And, you know, let me repeat my reasons again. I made a lot of enemies by 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 saying this. And I held out. My boss, to his credit, was like, we're not going to force you to do anything you don't believe in. I held out for a solid two years of the arrayed forces of all of Facebook engineering management being angry at me for this thing. And finally, I'm like, you know what? I might be crazy. Like, maybe they're right. They are Facebook. Maybe all of these concerns that I have are, I'm just too provincial. I can't get my head around it, you know, whatever. And you know what? It would be amazing if we could expose Facebook services via the Parse API. That would be super awesome. So, you know what? 
I'm on board, you know? And I not only that, but I got my entire team stoked about this miserable multi-year project of moving an infrastructure from one to the other, right? Nobody has yet to have fun, but I like sold them on it and I, you know, I carved out this, I crafted a role for each of them that was going to push their boundaries, help them learn new things and set them up for like great success at their next, you know, challenges and everything. And my team got excited. We, I sent out a status update that we were doing this. I sent, you know, regular like bi-weekly status updates of our prog- progress, we're doing everything in full sight. And two months into this, I get a ping from the same director of infrastructure who's like, what are you doing? And like, I'm doing what you guys have been telling me to do for two years. Like we're moving into FE infra. Don't worry. Everybody knows capacity infrastructure knows they provision it. Like all the teams know everything's going great. He's like, well, well, we can't spare the resources from these other teams to support (laughs) you. I'm like, no, 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 it's cool. We got it covered. Like we're doing it ourselves. Like it's not going to be any burden. Like we've already done this shit. And he just like keeps like throwing, starts calling meetings and my team starts getting concerned. I'm like, no, no, don't worry about it. Like these dudes have been like leaning on me so hard for two years. Like, this is fine. Don't worry about it. Do your shit. Finally, my boss pulls me aside. He's like, I'm so sorry. You don't understand what's going on here. They're not going to let you succeed, but nobody wants to be the one who pulls the plug on your project. It has to take the fall for it. They need you to do that. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that. He's like, well, for as long as you don't do that, your team will just continue to waste their efforts on things that will never ship. And I went, mother (laughs) Okay, so I pulled the plug on it. I got a bad review that quarter for my mistakes in doing this. I managed to get good reviews for my folks, but that killed something in me. (laughs) That was really what led, it wasn't actually the open par stuff that led to my, after that, I just started to have like ulcers and, and just like, you know, and I made the best of it with my team. Like we printed out a mission accomplished banner and we threw a party where we, <laughs> we had a black cake and booze and shit. And like they were impacted, but you know, not too demoralized, but it hit me like, like a lot. And it's just, you know, there's a lot of Facebook is a very non-confrontational, very, very smiley, happy, friendly to your face, like aggressively so to the point where they won't actually tell you things straight up. You have to find it out in the hallway afterwards from somebody who actually knows something. And I didn't know everybody, so I just take, took people up at their word. So I regularly had things like this happen at a, at a volume. It's the kind of thing where if you're at Facebook and if you're one of the senior engineers who's been there a long time, who everyone defers to and gets out of your way, and like you know, I think it's a glorious place to work. If you're a junior engineer who wants to get a well-rounded education and get from junior to senior in like three years flat, their machine is is optimized for that. I think that they're very good at that. But for a senior engineer who comes in through the side, <laughs> it's not always the best. This is the thing about, this is a, a characteristic of large corporations the corporate pol- when people talk about corporate politics this is what they're talking about the fact that you have these people who have they will do anything they will destroy you they they want to destroy you this is the one area of their lives where they can exercise some amount of power and they're going to use it to their full extent in this case i think that things just changed nobody really paid attention and nobody was willing to take responsibility but the thing is these organizations are just just to complete my point i don't know anything about that manager specifically but there are people who are 
so bitter with their lives. They've they've gotten to a place and and or for some other reason, there are all kinds of perverse reasons where you can end up in a situation where you are in the middle of an organization and you are not happy with your life and the way that building your petty powers. <laughs> yeah, your your pettiness. It's kind of heartbreaking to hear your side of that, but at, at the same time, I'm glad you told that story because there's somebody out there right now who works at some other big corporation and they've just been a victim of the same thing and they're fig- feeling the same kind of like cognitive dissonant sort of thing where you know that you felt that you're like why is this happening like why does it have to be this way i feel like the bigger a business gets the more it it has to depersonalize right it has to become a machine because otherwise things don't work and i get that i really do you can find like blips of humanity in in teams and one-on-one time and everything but the organization itself is a machine and its job is to depersonalize you and I don't like that, which is why I prefer startups, where you, everyone is relentlessly human, like in-your-face human. You have to get used. It's like your siblings almost, right? You spend all this real human time with each other. And I think that there are ways to love your job at a big company, but I think that you have to first learn how to depersonalize too, to depersonalize and dehumanize and detach and like make it a compartmentalized part of your life where you just go there and you do the things that the org requires as well as whatever brings you joy, you know, but you have to kind of learn to separate those. That's my theory at least. And, and I don't know how to do that or didn't do that successfully. Or, you know, I think I could do that successfully at a big company if made, like if funding got required, if I had chosen into it, you know, if I made the decision to go into this with my eyes open, knowing that I had a choice. So well, so last time we, we talked about the difference. I don't mean to be such a downer. No, I'm no, sorry. no. I, I actually, I, I really like that story. That story is so good because it's, so I, I worked at Amazon only eight months. I Your loyalty exceeds mine. You know, your ability to stay for the the year and a half stints at these companies or, or, or you know, 13 month stints. Oh, three years. <laughs> I've been more of an eight monther. So uh, <laughs> I saw this at Amazon. I saw people be victims of this at Amazon. Like, And I've heard about people being victims of it, of, of it before. I've, I've read a number of books where this is this kind of thing is highlighted. And there just seems to be this part of humanity that it, maybe it is. Maybe we do need to depersonalize in these large organizations in order to be more yeah, productive. I mean, if I wasn't putting my whole self into that job, if I was just like, you know, taking my, you know, three weeks of vacation every year, if I was, you know, coming in at 10 or 11, checking out at five and just putting my work aside when I went home, you know, it shouldn't have been heart crushing. You know, it was because I identified so much with my work and it was so intensely a part of me and it was so, you know, it, I put too much of myself into it even after I should have stopped doing that because of circumstances. So the other thing is that Facebook is so cohesive. What I wonder is, was this kind of a rational action by the organization to sort of freeze you out because they identified that you were going to be some, you're going to be too gritty. You know, you were not going to be. I don't think this had anything to do with me. I think it literally was just that they realized that the amount of work it would take to support, it was the technical reasons which I identified for them on day one. It was too much work and too little time. They couldn't do it. Oh, oh so it was literally. It was literally, it was literally what I told them it was. You over time, you were like, you were like, yeah, okay, fine. I can see the idealistic yeah. side of this. Yes. Whatever, who cares? Yes. And then Maybe by right. by then, they had actually. No, it was literally what I told them it was. That is so. That's actually just hilarious. Then. Yeah. But this is the other thing I wanted to compliment you on is the ability to see that other side instead of digging in. You know, you could you could have just as easily dug in and dug in and dug in further, but instead you did find the other side of it, which happens so often at these software 
software companies where nobody really knows what they're doing. Like we're built, all building these weird products that yeah, there's no precedent for. You can kind of like yeah. see things from different perspectives if you yeah. if you have the humility to. Well, I wonder what was best for Parse. So. Yeah. So what lessons from the Parse and Facebook experience have you brought to Honeycomb? Oh boy. Well, I wrote a whole blog post actually right after the announcement of Parse getting shut down where I talked about my acquisition lessons. <laughs> so if we ever go through an acquisition, it will be things like, you know, have a C-level sponsor, make sure there's alignment, you know, look for a period of independence, etc. But as far as like what we brought to Honeycomb, well, one of the, a couple of them I'd mentioned already, like Christine and I feel very strongly about transparency. Like we see this not as our company, like we're the founders, there's big, some big bright line between us and the employees like this is all of our company and we, we've tried to be more generous with stock than as much as our investors will let us because it doesn't seem fair for us to get like orders of magnitude more than people who have been here almost as long you know we are not a democracy but we we democratize access to information as much as possible legally and um, ethically and we do try to be transparent with people about where we're at, including like the couple times we've considered acquisitions. We've told people, hey, you're gonna see some folks walking around. We're not planning getting an acquisition. We're not wanting an acquisition, but we are talking to some folks. If you have any questions, you know, let us know, that sort of thing. And it will never be a shock if and when something happens. It will never be a shock to our team, I can guarantee that. Another lesson that we took away was the importance of not giving away our product. <laughs> At least not too much, not too early on. You know, we do have a free tier now and probably waited a little too long. We maybe overlearned that lesson, but we did not want to have the army of entitled free users eating up expensive storage that we did a parse. What's true about building startups today that was not true when you were working on parse? Oh, that is a great question. Well, kind of boring answer is that um, from the investment side, the landscape has changed a lot. Back then, there was a lot of willingness in the side of investors to like take risks and, and big plays, and like there was a sense that there was this there are going to be some big players, and 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 there wasn't really this like straight up recipe like at Series A you must be this many dollars of revenue and this much of a you know margin at Series B it must be this much and this much it wasn't that strict as we're encountering today, which is makes things a bit harder. Like the rules that New Relic was raising money under were vastly different than the rules that we are raising money under today, which is unfortunate, but is what it is. Another is that these platforms as a service have, have come along like serverless is now like the big the big hot thing and like the the margin for people like cost for building a really cool product just keeps dropping like a rock and and a developer another thing that's that's changed is is how much developers can and should be in the driver's seat for their own code, right? They need to be, like, I think I was the last of the generations at Parse where it was reasonable for me to be on call instead of the software engineers who were writing the code. It was reasonable at the time, it was the right decision, but I would tell anyone starting out today, no, 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 no. It's almost flipped. I would almost say if you have one SRE and a bunch of software engineers, the SRE should not be on call because they're always like backup on call and Instead, the engineers who are writing shipping code every day should be in the rotation. You were CEO of Honeycomb originally, and you you decided to switch to CTO. What drove that decision? 
Uh, CEO is the worst job in the world. <laughs> it's, the, it's the worst. I never wanted to be CEO. There are originally three of us that started Honeycomb and we had to let one of them go a couple months in and I hadn't really realized the implications of that meant that I mean, someone else has to be CEO, and so that was me. I tried real hard to give that job away for a year. I never loved it. I always hated it, but I did it because it needed to be done, and I'm fundamentally very motivated by what needs to be done I will do, not what's fun. But I also believe that you don't really do a good job at something unless you enjoy it. And, and that was okay for a while because often I start out not liking something, but then I grow to like it over time. And that never happened with the CEO job. And so I don't think I was doing a very good job. So, and I hate spreadsheets, dude. Christine is so much better at spreadsheets. She's better at like meetings that happen, have to happen at the same day, same time, every week after week after week. All of these things, the predictability, the, you know, dealing with finances, I'm terrible with finances, you know, all these things. I got us through the period where nobody knew about us. And so the ability, you know, the fact that my name was a little bit known, I could draw some, draw some attention. And, you know, there was just a lot of ad hoc running around and crap. But now that we're settling into a more predictable cadence and we have big enterprise customers that need a steadier hand on the sales motions and everything, I have no patience for sales either. It's just a much better place for Christine. All right. Final question. This is a broad question. It can span over any part of your career, but... What do you wish was different in the tech culture? That's a really interesting question. I love tech. You know, I, I've always, I know we criticize from a place of love, but I feel like we, we often gloss over the fact that things are getting better for almost everyone in tech. Like, we're, it's so easier for us to see the, the failures in the, in the places where, you know, people are being hurt. And, and it's good that we can see that. Years ago, we couldn't see that. When I grew up, I became an engineer because I wanted to be where all the women weren't <laughs> because I grew up in a fundamentalist home where women just had babies and cooked and I didn't want to do that. So I ran as far away from women as I could get. And I have, I have, you know, been learning to be a much better feminist through my adulthood. I will say that tech doesn't have enough sparkles. <laughs> I really enjoy aggressively feminizing male dominated spaces. So I always try to bring a bit of sparkles and pink and we need more nail polish swag, basically just girly. Uh, associated with tech. That's my, you know, off the cuff, lighthearted answer. On a deeper level, I think that it's the thing that I would change about tech is just the, I would make, instead of making like, everybody's chasing the few ex Facebook, ex Google people and funding them, just make it a lottery. Honestly, I think most hiring processes could be replaced with a lottery and no one would be worse <laughs> off. Like, I think that there's too much policing and guarding around, you know, access to these things that are the best team or the best company or the best engineers and the best, oh, like you're not actually, it's kind of like, you know, the idea of having an investment advisor versus just putting your money in mutual funds and how like the mutual funds usually out. I honestly think that a lotto would out earn and outperform most of the processes that we have around hiring and um, early stage investing. Well, that's interesting. All right. Well, very good thoughts to leave us with. Charity, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I've, I've really, I've really enjoyed conversation. Hope I wasn't too much of a downer. That was an interesting no, conversation. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, if you've listened to any of these interviews, they've mostly been like glowingly positive reviews. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's just nice to know that they're, you know, Facebook is not a place that is insulated from the underbelly of no. human nature driven by corporatism. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Charity. Great to talk once again. Well, thanks for having me. 